If you're new with us, again, you find us in the middle of a three-week series, a brief kind of mini-series on the role and qualification of elders in the life of a local church. And so this morning we find ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have it, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together this morning. We'll read verses 1 to 7 together. Paul says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he, must be, he may become puffed up by, with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Now, some of you may be asking the question, why do I need to know the role God has given and the qualification God requires of elders in the life of the church? Because I don't ever see myself serving as an elder in a local church. Let me give you two reasons, even if you don't ever see yourself serving as an elder in a local church. The first one is this, is because every Christian needs to dis- be able to distinguish between the kind of leadership you should follow and the kind of leadership you shouldn't follow, because there's a difference between those two things. You recognize that in business, you recognize that in government, and you should recognize that in the local church as well. Right? So there's a difference between the kinds of folks that you should fall in line with and follow after and the kinds of folks that you should break from and move on. But the second reason is this. Is though you may not find within yourself right now today an aspiration for that, my hope and my prayer is that God would plant one within many men within the life of this congregation to raise them up to become spiritual leaders in our church. Not just those who would idly sit back and, and receive ministry, but those who would actually help grab the reins and engage in ministry in the life of the church. And if God was to plant that desire in you one day, you need to know what He expects of that, the kind of role that you should be fulfilling, and the qualifications uh, that would uh, qualify you to serve in that capacity. Right? In addition, I want you to consider this. In, in the text that we just read together in 1 Timothy 3 this morning, um, almost exclusively, and we're only going to hit verses 1 to 3 this morning. We're not going to we'll pick up in verses 4 and following next week. But in verses 1 to 3, almost every qualification t- Paul gives to Timothy is a qualification of character. It's a qualification. There's one competency that he gives in those lists of qualification, and that is the ability to teach. And we'll look at that next week in more detail and drill down into it. But everything else is a qualification of character. Well, listen, I'm, I'm afraid that oftentimes within local churches, what we have a tendency to do is we tend to look at those who have high degrees of competencies in many areas and say, well, they must be a good fit for leadership in the local church because they're so gifted in their business. They must be gifted to lead in the church as well. But listen, Paul is very clear that what qualifies a a man is not necessarily how good he is in his competencies, but how deep his character runs. How deep his character runs. You see the... You see Israel making the same mistake in the Old Testament, don't you? Whenever they begin to cry out to God for a king. We want somebody to rule us like the other nations. 
And so who do they choose as their king? They choose a guy who is head and shoulders above the rest. It's very impressive. He's got a good resume. They choose Saul. And Saul is a train wreck, okay, as a spiritual leader in the nation of Israel. And the same can happen in local churches if we don't understand who it is that God has called, gifted, and are qualified to lead, okay? So last week we talked about the fact that elders are spiritually qualified men who are called by God and affirmed by the church to work together to lead, feed, and keep the local church. This morning I want to see a couple other things about eldering. I made it into a participle. Eldering, uh, before we look at the qualifications. So, and the first thing is this. Eldering, Paul says, is a noble task. It's a noble task. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says that the office of the overseer or elder is not a place of privilege, but it's a place of service. It's a noble thing. Paul calls it essentially this. He says that the the, the word noble there literally means good or beautiful. It's a beautiful work for someone to give their life to the shepherding and feeding and caring for God's people. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. If you think of the most beautiful piece of art that you've ever laid eyes on, the most beautiful sunset that you've ever witnessed in God's common grace, in the beauty of creation, in the heights of the mountaintops, in the depths of the valleys, as you see the canyons that are created, as you see the snow-capped peaks that exist in the Rockies. The most beautiful thing in all of creation, listen, I want to submit to you this morning this, that the work of shepherding, the work of eldering in the life of a local church causes all those things to pale in comparison. It's a beautiful work. It's a a noble work that elders aspire to. So it's a noble thing. It's not to be diminished. It's not to say, what's the least common denominator that we can find that we can just plug somebody into a role and say, yeah, we we, we can be satisfied with them. No, because this thing's it's a noble thing. It's a noble thing. Second thing Paul says is this, is that we should nominate men who have a divine urging. Now this kind of goes hand in hand with the the, the ask with, with the noble task that Paul is talking about here, this good and beautiful task. It should be those who possess a divine urging. Paul says the first thing you should look for in someone who would serve in the office of elder is somebody that wants to serve in the office of elder. <laughs> right, They've they got to have a want to. There's got to be a desire for that, a craving or an appetite. Now, you and I know what it's like to have an appetite for something, don't we? Yeah, we do. We know what it's like to have an appetite for a good food like your favorite restaurants. You know, it's like to have an appetite for a hobby that you might enjoy, okay? Or for a sport that you might participate in. You have an appetite, a craving, or an eager longing for that. And so as a result of that, no one has to come up to you and say, hey, have you eaten today? <laughs> hey, ha- have, you, have you fueled your body today with good food Right? Nobody has to come up to you and say, listen, I know you enjoy fishing. Have you been fishing in the last, you have a longing, an appetite for fishing. Yeah, have you been fishing in the last year? No, because you have an appetite for that. And so you, what do you do? You make time for it. You carve out space for it. Right? Nobody has to come up and say, hey, I know you enjoy decorating and painting and fixing up. Have you done any projects in the last year? No, why? Because there's an appetite and you create space for it. The same is true 
when it comes to this appetite or craving or an eager longing for the work of shepherding. Listen, one of the reasons Paul says an elder must want to be an elder is because what that does is it creates a self-starting motivation within their souls, within their hearts, that no one's having to come and check up on and say, have you been discipling someone? Have you been encouraging someone? Have you been investing in someone? Have you been pursuing those who have gone wayward? Have you been doing these things that God's called us to do? Have you been instructing others? Because there's an appetite for that kind of work. There's a craving for that kind of work. There's a longing for that kind of work. Now listen, this want to that he speaks of, it doesn't always have to be a spoken want to. Here's what I mean by that. Right? You don't necessarily want to pick the person who's going, right, like a kid when you ask for volunteers, like, pick me, pick me, pick me. In fact, I'm a little weary of those who are going, pick me for this office. But when somebody sits down across the table from you and says, have you ever sensed within your heart a longing, a spirit birth longing to give your life, to give your labor to the shepherding of God's people through teaching, through caring, through guiding, and through leading and protecting the local church. And there is something that kind of leaps within your soul. That, that's the person that you want. And they say, yes, I do have a longing for that. But they're not jumping up and down going, I want it. Right? There's a difference between those two things. The latter might be just longing for power and position, whereas the former recognizes the weight of the office, even though there is a longing and a desire and a craving and an appetite for it. Because you don't want an elder who feels like they're the last person forced onto some committee (laughs) just to fill out the spot. But you also don't want an elder who is, is going to exercise, we saw last week, be domineering over those in their charge. All right? So one of the ways you know that you can test this want to in the life of an elder is this. How do you know if it's a healthy desire or aspiration? Because not everybody who wants to can or should. Okay? How do you test it? First of all, there's a willingness to submit the desire to the qualifications of Scripture that Paul outlines. So, do you have the aspiration? Do you have the desire? If so, are you willing to submit and test that desire in accordance with what Paul says qualifies us, what the Scriptures say qualify someone to serve in that kind of capacity? Right? Because Paul doesn't say it would be nice to have, for an elder to have these things. He actually uses a little four-letter word there that's must. Must possess these characteristics. Second of all, there's not only a willingness to test this in accordance with what the Scriptures teach, but there's also a willingness to submit that desire to other good, godly, wise leaders in the life of that local church. Say, would you come alongside of me and help test this desire in me? Would you see into my life and help me know whether that desire needs to be right, just tested further or whether or not it needs to be tempered for a season and pulled back because I'm just knowing I'm not ready for that. Because there's a sense of humility in those individuals. Now one other thing I want you to notice before we get to these qualifications is this. Is that elders, although it's, the term is frequently used to describe men who are older in age, right? They may have some gray hairs on their head, maybe in their beard as it's kind of starting to get a little bit gray there. Kind of, kind of salt and peppery, right? That's how it's typically used. But, but listen, I want you to understand something. In the Scriptures, I think you see a prime example of this in the life of Timothy, but in the Scriptures, 
Age, while it is customarily, customarily associated with maturity, is not necessarily associated with maturity. You ever found that to be true? <laughs> Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Or, yeah, yeah, 1 Timothy 4.12, he says this, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul says to Timothy, right, don't let anybody despise you, look down upon you, give a condescending glance in your direction because you're younger. But rather set an example in your character and the way that you conduct yourself among the church. In fact, elsewhere in the letters to Timothy, Paul gives Timothy clear instructions on how he ought to relate to men who are older than he is and to women who are older than he is as he shepherds them. Which leads us to believe that Timothy was shepherding a congregation with people who were his seniors in accordance with their biological birthdays. Right? In fact, most commentators and scholars believe Timothy, when Paul writes to him, is probably somewhere in his late 20s to early 30s. And so while age is customarily, it is not necessarily a marker of maturity. And so elders don't have to necessarily be older men. But they can be younger men. Because there are times in which older men have become stunted in their mature, maturation process. And there are younger men who have an eager desire to continue to grow and mature and become more Christ-like. They take the Bible more seriously. They serve more faithfully. They show up more consistently at times. Whereas I've seen it in the life of local churches. Some older men, when they reach a certain age, it's like, I'm hanging up my bootstraps, right? I'm retiring from all this work that I've been doing. I just need some rest. And so they kind of retire from ministry in the local church, whereas younger men are hungry for it. And if I have to choose between, if we as a, I said that wrong, if we as a church have to choose between older men who have sought to retire from the work of ministry and younger men who are wanting to give their lives to that, we, I think we ought to, we ought to choose younger men, even though they're going to make mistakes, even though they're going to, they're going to fail, even though they're going to have to be corrected and directed back into the proper lanes and channels at times. There's going to be growing pains in that process, but I would rather someone who has a want to, even if they're young, rather than someone who lacks desire and is being forced as a final cog in a wheel to make it turn. Does that make sense, church? So they're not necessarily older men. They must possess a divine want to, a divine urging for this kind of work. Now, even if they want to, it's not enough to want to be an elder. Because the next question is, can they be an elder? Can they serve as a pastor in the life of a local church? So here comes the character qualifications that Paul lines out. That we ought to nominate men. Listen, listen, church, as we open up nominations next week, we ought to nominate men who have possessed patterns of character in their life. Now listen, I want to go ahead and say from the outset, there are no perfect men. <laughs> there are no perfect people, are there? There's not. But there ought to be patterns of character in their lives. Right? Let, me give, let me try to illustrate it for you this way. Listen, if I go out to the golf course this afternoon 
And I bring my bag of clubs out there. I strap them onto the cart. I pay my green fee and cart fee. And I head out to the first tee. And alongside the first tee are a row of houses running to the right-hand side of the fairway with pools and big glass windows cascading a view out there over the golf course. Right? And I roll up to the first tee and I kind of stretch my back out a little bit. I take a few practice swings and then I step up to the tee and I grip it and I rip it. Right? Before all that ever happens, people on the right-hand side of the fairway, they're rolling down the armor plating on their windows. They are pulling their kids in from the pool. They got pets in the backyard. They're like, we got to batten them down. Right? They've They've got all kinds of protective measures if they see me rolling up to the number one tee. Why? Because I have a terrible slice. And I can't control. I don't know where it's going to go, when it's going to go there. But listen, if Rory McIlroy or Justin Spieth or any of these professional golfers roll up to the first tee and they pull out their clubs and they bring that club back and they rip it, they might be off in the rough or in the fairway, or under a tree next to the cart path, but they're not going to be in the window. <laughs> right? Because they have patterns. Most consi- they, they hit the ball straight consistently, even though there might be a couple of times around in which it kind of veers to the right or veers to the left. And that's what I think Paul is saying. There ought to be patterns of character in the lives of these people who are serving as pastors or elders in the life of a local church. Because you're not going to find someone who can hit it straight down the middle of the fairway every single time. But you also don't want someone that whenever they step up to the tee box, people are protecting their pets and their kids and their windows. They need to have patterns of character. And the way Paul says this is he says it by saying this. In verse 2 he says that an elder must be above reproach. Above reproach. Now to be above reproach means that this individual must be someone who does not open himself up to accusation or criticism. You know, literally it means this in the Greek. They can't be apprehended. They can't be laid hold of. Right? They're not open to censure. Not somebody that's being arrested. Locked behind bars. And in fact, the word above reproach, they're not opening themselves up to accusation or criticism. And even when charges might be brought against them, there's not enough evidence for them to stick because of their life, because of their character, because of their witness, because of how they have lived. And there are ten areas, Paul says, in which an elder must be above reproach. Or actually nine. He says they're able to teach. We'll hit that next week. So there's nine areas. So let's hit nine of them. This is dangerous, isn't it? We're going to go quick. First of all, he says, must be the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now listen, this is one place in the Scriptures uh, that we, Redeemer, base our understanding that the office of elder in the local church should be limited to spiritually qualified men. He further goes down in the same text to say he must manage, he must manage his household well. If you go forward into 1 Timothy 3, he gives the qualifications for deacons, and in that same text he says they must be the husband of one wife, but also in that text on the qualifications for deacons, he lays out qualifications for what I believe to be female deacons, not wives of deacons. But he doesn't give such qualifications here for the office of elder. Now this is 
contested and debated hotly within our culture. And so let me give you a couple of reasons why we see this, or to, 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 to kind of defend this a little bit. First of all, I think we need to understand that when it comes to people playing different roles, it does not mean that they have different value, Right? They might have distinct roles and equal value. I think you see this in the Godhead Himself, in our triune God. If you read Ephesians chapter 1, you see that it is the Father that predestines, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit who seals and sanctifies. They are equal in persons, but they play different roles, even within the Godhead, and in the playing of different roles, it does not diminish their value in one iota. In addition, I think you see it in the, the text on spiritual gifts when Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, the mouth cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. In other words, God gives people different gifts in the life of the local church. So that, the, so that I, as, as a preacher or teacher in the local church, can't say to those who are gifted with administration, we don't need you. Right? Because those gifts are just as valuable and those people are no less valuable in the life of a local church. Okay? So different roles, different gifts do not mean this different levels of value. It's not that one person is more important than the other. They just play a distinct role. Second, I think what we need to see is this, that while Jesus' interaction with women in his day was radical, absolutely radical, he still did not go beyond the view of roles inherited from the Old Testament Scriptures. See, consider this, underlying Jesus' ministry was this radical assumption that women had enormous value, enormous purpose, equal and on par with every man. He said, and the clearest example of, some examples of this is that in, in his mother Mary, who he calls highly favored with the Lord, he used women in his illustrations and his teaching. He affirmed and held up high the example of the persistent widow who, as, as an example of prayerfulness, to petition and not give up. He holds up the poor widow's offering an example of generosity in Luke chapter 21. He says, you want to know what generosity looks like? Look at this poor, poor widow. You want to know what prayerfulness looks like? Look at this persistent widow. In addition, in Luke 13, he addresses women tenderly as daughters of Abraham, placing them on the same spiritual plane as men. His teaching on divorce treated women as people and not property in Matthew chapter 5. His instruction about lust protected women from being nothing more than objects of sexual desire, which they had a tendency to be in that day and time and in ours. And in a time where female learning was suspect within their culture, listen, Jesus made a point to teach women on numerous occasions. He brought them in. He instructed them and cared for them in Luke chapter 10 and in John chapter 11. And yet, I want you to listen to the words of another pastor, Kevin DeYoung. He says it this way, Yet, Jesus' revolutionary treatment of women was, nevertheless, consistent with God's original design for role distinctions. The most obvious example, he says, is his selection of an all-male apostolic leadership. Now, he goes on to say, it do, it, he goes on to say this, and it won't do to say that Jesus was simply going along with the social customs of his day. He had no problem breaking social taboos. Listen, when it was, which, which is why it was, he mingled with tax collectors. He ate without washing his hands. He redefined the Sabbath. He, mis, he, or he re reinterpreted the temple, condemned the Pharisees, and honored women. The fact is that while he overturned some Jewish interpretations about divorce and lust and retribution, Jesus never rejected the biblical teaching from the Old Testament. 
Jesus honored women in a countercultural way without rejecting everything he inherited from his Jewish Old Testament background concerning men and women. And listen, I, as at Redeemer, I, me personally, and I believe our elders who are serving currently, our consciences are, are bound by what we see in the Scriptures. We want to honor women. We want to value them. We want to say they can serve in all kinds of capacities within the life of the local church. We want to install them as deacons. We want to see them even giving leadership to areas of ministry. We still are, we believe our consciences are bound by the office of elder, being limited to spiritually qualified men. Now, this is the longest I'm going to take on any of the rest of these, I promise. <laughs> You're like, oh, we're going to be here until the Cowboys kick off, right? At 2.30. Um, but, but, now listen, some would take this verse, the husband of one wife, to mean and to support of you that no man who's ever been divorced can serve as an elder. Okay? Now, had Paul meant to say that, I believe that he could have used the word for divorce, the Greek word for divorce. But rather, what I believe Paul is saying is that he has consistent patterns of behavior in his life that would not open him up to charges of sexual impropriety, promiscuity, fornication, indecency. And even if those charges did come, they wouldn't stick because there's not enough evidence to show that. He's faithful to his spouse. And if he's married, he aims to live in purity. And if he's single, he aims to live in chastity until he is married. I think that's what Paul is communicating here. He's not saying if you've ever been divorced, ah, one strike, you're done. If you were divorced before you became a Christian, you're out. If you were divorced after you became a Christian, your spouse abandoned you, you're out. I think what he's saying is that he's faithful to his spouse that he, that he essentially loves the one that he's with, that he's faithful to the one that he's with, doesn't have a wandering heart, a wandering mind, a wandering eye, that he gives his attention and his affection to one and one only. And so we listen, church, as we think about how we ought to nominate, we ought to nominate men who are the husband of one wife. There's a pattern of faithfulness in the context of their marriage. You see them honoring their spouse. You see them serving their spouse. You see them caring for their spouse. You see them. You see them with all their, their affection going in one direction and not multiple. Second thing, second way, he says elders ought to be above reproach and it ought to be exhibited in their life. They ought to be sober-minded. Sober-minded. Now, to be sober-minded literally essentially means this, that they're not irrational or intoxicated with misdirected and unbridled passion. They're not inebriated with cultural values. Right? Yeah, I, I, I remember growing up and being kind of out in the... In my, I had friends, say it that way, who'd go out into the sticks every weekend. Right? And they would bring a 24-pack of beer. And they would drink and drink and drink and drink and drink. And then eventually someone would say, hold my beer and watch this. Now listen, that never ended well. Never ended well. Why? Because you make foolish decisions whenever you are intoxicated. Whenever you're inebriated. Foolish decisions. And what Paul is saying is this, and there's a sense of intoxication in the mind that can take place in a life that would lead us to make foolish choices and lead people in foolish directions. And he says an elder ought to be one who is sober-minded. They ought to think clearly. right? They ought, to, they, ought, they ought not to be intoxicated with the values of their culture. And so we ought to nominate men who are not intoxicated, but they think clearly. Second of all, Paul says they ought to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled meant you weren't unstable or impulsive or impetuous. 
So when it came to decision-making processes, right, you weigh out the options with prayer and reason and Scripture and godly counsel to make a Spirit-led, sensible, biblically-informed decision. You're self-controlled. And so we ought to nominate men in whose life there's a pattern of self-controlled decision-making, not impulsiveness that leads to instability. To where, to where one day, they're, it's, like the, it's like a pendulum on a clock. One day they swing real far in this direction, and the next day they swing real far in this direction. And it's like tick-tock, tick-tock, right? But they're able to think with patience and weigh things out and make, and, and, and make informed decisions. Third, Paul says they ought to be respectable. Respectable. To be respectable, listen, didn't just mean that they were well-mannered. And so they, when they went to a formal dinner, they knew the difference between a salad fork and a dinner fork. Okay? It's not, or they knew you know, the proper way to unfold a napkin and place it on their lap. They weren't just well-mannered individuals. Okay? They didn't know how to ballroom dance. I mean, it could be good quality. That's not what it means to be respectable. What it meant to be respectable was this, that their life was well-ordered. In other words, there weren't patterns of excess in their life. Okay? Where they were giving themselves to excess. Their priorities were in line. And the part, this this respect, respectability comes from being sober-minded and self-controlled. Let me ask you this question. Is the person that you're considering nominating, do you see patterns of excess in their life? Patterns of excess financially. Patterns of excess in possessions. Patterns of excess in, in where they spend their time. Are they inordinate? Are their love so disordered that they give inordinate amounts of time to areas of life that really matter very little at the end of the day? Are there patterns of excess? In addition, Paul says, he must be above reproach it must be expressed through his hospitality. Hospitality. Now this term originally referred to opening your home to itinerant missionaries or traveling uh, evangelists essentially in the ancient world. As believers traveled from one city to the next, as they preached the gospel, as they planted churches, there were people who brought them in, gave them a place to stay, opened up their home, put food on the table for them to eat. But it came to be referred to as not only opening up this structure for people to lay their heads down, but opening up your life to let people in. And for someone who is called to shepherd with people, to be among people, to have people-centered work, hospitality is a crucial. It's not just a suggestion. Yeah, he ought to be nice, but it's a requirement. He must be hospitable. He must be accessible. He must be available to people. Not quarantined from the life of others in the church. That he's willing to give his time and his energy and his resources and his effort to those who are part of the congregation. He must welcome the people, people into their lives. So we have to nominate those who are hospitable. Who open their lives up. They invite people over. They seek people out. They're... They're having lunches and coffees and engaging in relationships. I don't know what number this is, but the next one. <laughs> Paul says, he's not a drunkard. He's not a drunkard. Now listen, Paul does not mandate a Nazarite vow for those who would serve in the office of elder or pastor in the church. 
If you don't know what a Nazarite vow was, a part of it included that no alcohol ever touched their lips in the Old Testament. Okay? Samson was a guy who was, who was committed to a Nazarite vow, right? And eventually he gives away a secret, cuts his hair, ends up getting plastered and pushing down a bunch of buildings. Okay? It didn't, didn't end well for him. Uh, but Paul does not mandate that here. He doesn't say you've got to never allow alcohol to touch their lips, but if... There's a pattern of drunkenness in their life, a pattern of excess in their life where they're overly consuming, becoming intoxicated. It becomes overwhelmingly clear that they're dependent upon a substance rather than the spirit. That person is disqualified from the office of elder or pastor. So consuming alcohol doesn't disqualify a man, but listen, if they are hunting wild turkeys every weekend with Captain Morgan and Jim Beam and Johnny Walker... Then, and, and they're stumbling out of their house, right, can't put one foot in front of the other, then they ought not be nominated to the office of elder. They're not fit for serving as a pastor. And so whenever you look at the lives of those that you seek to nominate, whenever you find them to be under pressure, where do they look first? Do they look to the Bible or to a bottle? Do they look to the Holy Spirit? Or do they look to a shelf of spirits to pour drink after drink after drink after drink? Next, he says, not violent, but gentle. This qualification strikes at the heart of those with anger issues, those who may easily blow their fuse. See, these kinds of folks would be prone to use their position to bully and bludgeon people into conformity. Because they get things done by being violent, by being angry, and people cower in their presence. And Paul says they, they, they ought not be violent, but they ought be gentle. So rather than bullying and bludgeoning people, they should exhibit a forbearance, a patience, a consideration, a flexibility when approaching others or being approached by them. You know what the word gentleness in the Bible means, literally? It means this. It means a bridled strength. In other words, they're capable of more, but they bridle it. I think of this beautiful illustration of this in the Chronicles of Narnia. When you see the, the lion, Aslan, and as he interacts with the children, with Lucy and Peter and Edmund, what, have you ever noticed particularly with Lucy as he talks with her? How does he talk with her? He talks with her just with this, with this gentleness, with a patience, with a forbearance, with a consideration for her age and for her stage. And there is, he's never loud, he's never boisterous, he's always gentle, but when the white witch questions his willingness to fulfill his commitment to give his life in the place of the traitor, how does he respond? With a roar. He's capable of being louder. And he does so when necessary. But the pattern of his, of, of his interaction is of gentleness. And that's what Paul says you ought to be looking for in an elder. An elder ought to have a high rating on their fuse. Because if you install someone as an elder and their fuse has a rating of 1.5 amps and you've seen a 20-amp surge through that thing, it's going to blow and it's going to melt some stuff down in the life of the church. And then you're going to be cleaning it up. We are going to be cleaning it up together. And so as you seek to nominate someone to serve in this office of an elder in the life of this church, you ought to look for those 
who have a high-rated fuse, who exercise gentleness in their interactions and in their relationships. The next one he says, Paul says, they ought not be quarrelsome. This qualification strikes at the heart of like to pick fights. Uh, kind of like the false teachers in Ephesus. They want to go around picking fights. Listen, men who pick fights, they go around looking for quarrels. They have no place in the office of elder or pastor or overseer in the life of the church. Okay? They, they just don't. Because they stir, up, they stir up controversy. They stir up contention. They stir up issues in the life of a local church. Now, on the flip side of that, you see in places, we're told last week that the elder ought to be able to defend the church and protect the church. You see in the book of Jude, where Jude charges us to be able to contend for the faith once for all delivered for the saints. We should be able to contend for the faith and yet do so in ways that are not quarrelsome. So what are we looking for as we look to install someone in the office of elder? Let me tell you what we're looking for. We're looking for boxers and not brawlers. You know the difference between those two? A brawler goes out to the bar in the evenings and they're just looking for a fight. They're just looking to beat someone up. They're just looking, right, to go to blows with somebody in the alley out behind every single night. They're looking for it. But a boxer, he trains himself so that whenever he steps into the ring and somebody comes looking to fight him, he's able to fight. He's able to contend. He's able to defend himself. See, there's a difference between those two kinds of fighters. One who goes out looking for a fight and the one who's able to defend himself when somebody comes looking to fight him. And I believe what Paul is saying is this, is that you ought not look for a brawler, but you ought look for a boxer. Someone who's able to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, but not someone who's going out to look to doctrinal and theological fights at every turn and under every rock. Ninth, I believe. And finally, that he ought not be a lover of money. Now, in Paul's context and in ours, this is extremely, extremely important. Let me give you a few reasons. First of all, because monetary greed was never meant to be the motive for ministry. Never meant to be the motive for ministry. And in the life of an elder or an overseer or a pastor, if the motive for their ministry is monetary greed then listen, listen, then the congregation cannot trust that the money they generously, sacrificially, and faithfully give is being apportioned correctly. It's being used wisely. The congregation needs to know, this church needs to know that when an elder looks into their eyes, that they see souls and not dollar signs. They're not being seen as someone who can help pad a, an income or a bank account, but as someone who is precious in the eyes of God and is precious in their eyes as well. And that even whenever our pastors or our elders stand before you to say, listen, we want to leverage the resources God has given us. We want to ask you to dig deep and give faithfully and sacrificially because we have this project that we want to launch. You know the character of the people who are making that ask. And so you never question whether or not they're going to be taking a trip to the Bahamas for an elders retreat. <laughs> but the money's actually going to be going to what we're asking you to give towards. That they're not a lover of money. And listen, for those that you would seek to nominate... 
that you see in their life an unhealthy desire for material possessions and experiences. And if you find within yourself an aspiration to the office of overseer, let me ask you this question. Are you doing it because, even though you know there's no money in it, right? If, particularly if you're a lay elder in the life of the church, not a vocational one, but you may know there's no money in it, but you think, man, maybe, maybe if I serve in this way, I'd be respected and people would give me like sports tickets to go to games. If they got season tickets, they'll take me with them. Maybe they'll take me on vacation. Maybe they'll pay some of my bills. And that is not the motive for ministry. Not to take from people, but to give to them. Paul says this is what qualifies, the character that qualifies an individual to serve. It must be above reproach in these areas. That no charge can be levied against them. As you think about their marriage, as you think about their money, as you think about their respectability, the, how their life is ordered, as you think about their, their, there's a soberness in the way that they think, a self-controlledness in the way that they live. There's a hosp- hospitality. There's a gentleness. There's a willingness to defend, but not go out looking to pick fights. All these things, Paul says, ought to make up the character sketch of the kinds of folks that should serve in the local church as pastors and elders. But as we close, listen, I want you to know that none of this, none of this comes from these men alone. Listen, if left to myself, <laughs> I should step down off of this platform today and resign this post. Because in and of myself, I would never be qualified to serve as an elder in this church. In and of themselves, Steve and Stanley would never be qualified to serve as an elder in this church. So where does the canness come from, right? It comes from God. It comes from the empowering and equipping and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an elder. Listen, in Acts chapter 20, and I'll leave you with this, Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, be careful Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained by His own blood. Notice the means by which Paul says these elders have become elders. He says the Holy Spirit has made them such in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit has called them to this work. The Holy Spirit has equipped them for this work. And the Holy Spirit has brought about transformation and change in their life to qualify them for this work. That that desire that they found within them was not just last night's burrito, kind of giving them a little indigestion, thinking that maybe I should do this. It was the Holy Spirit calling them, quickening their hearts to move in this direction, to put their hands in the soil of people's lives and give themselves away. The gifts and abilities they find within themselves to fulfill that work were not just the things that they were born with, but the things the Spirit equipped them for. And listen, the character that would qualify them for that was not just because they were a better good old boy than the other boys down the street but it was the work of the Holy Spirit unpacking His bags in their life, bringing about sanctification and conforming their character to the image of Jesus Himself. So all that comes from God. And so as we as a church look to nominate those who would serve in this office, 
I want you to know that age is not a disqualifier. But they must be above reproach. Not with perfection, but there are patterns of character so that whenever they step up to the T, you can trust. They're not going to whack your child in the head with a golf ball. Spiritually speaking. So would you pray with me this morning that God would raise up those kinds of elders in the life of our church. Father, we thank you for the day, for the chance to come and celebrate the good news of Jesus. He's given his life in our place, lived and suffered and died and rose again, who's victorious over Satan, who's victorious over sin and victorious over death, and that he redeemed for himself a people to call his own, a people for your own possession that have been marked out before the foundations of the world. And have been saved and are now being sanctified. That one day they might spend eternity in glory with you. And Father, in this age, that marked out people are your local church. And in this local church, you have made, your Holy Spirit has made some elders. We pray you would make more elders in the life of this church. Regardless of their ages, that you would raise up men who have the character that would qualify them as being above reproach. they might desire to put their hands in the soil of people's lives to give themselves away to order their lives such that they're able to give themselves away Father we know all this comes from you so we pray that you would make it a reality here we ask it in Jesus name Amen